All right, guys. I am back in the studio and having another go at recording. And this time I'm recording and videoing it at the same time, which is, again, another little thing to get used to. And of course, I can't see myself. So it's like not like the same thing where you're like, you know what you look like. You're not sitting here having a conversation with yourself. It's just literally a video camera. So anyways. All right, here goes. I came in yesterday and felt like I got everything out, you know, that I needed to get out. But obviously there's so much more and I want to be able to relax into these conversations and actually get you know, deeper into them and maybe not bounce around as much, but that typically is my style. Okay. So embrace it. Really. I don't want to have to completely edit myself out. I want to stick with what I'm doing here. So anyways, I've gone blank again. You get in here. I've had a million thoughts all morning and I come into this room and I'm like, I don't have anything to say. Nothing. Crickets. But that's not the truth. I guess it's kind of the same as, you know, people who go to practice and they're like really good at practice and then they show up on race day and they're like fall apart. And that's always been such a significant part of, you know, who Chad is and his racing style and everything like that is, you know, he would practice well. But it wasn't like he was the practice track champion or anything. He just did what he had to do and then he would go to the track and when it came to racing time, that's when he, you know, step it up. Even in practice and qualifying, it was never, you know, if obviously if he's outside, you know, especially in those heydays, if he was outside the top 10, it would have been a massive deal. But they were always, you know, within the top five anyways or, you know, somewhere in the top eight. It didn't matter because there were guys out there that could throw down one lap and you knew that that's all they had. So it was never really a thing. I know for other people it's like if they don't get, you know, top three lap times in qualifying, then they are, um, you know, really struggling with that. Whereas that was never really chat. It wasn't a thing. He always knew that when it was time to go, he'd step it up for the race and, you know, he'd be able to do those laps consistently as opposed to just doing, you know, one hot lap and that was it. He had a tendency to be better towards the end of the race than he was at the start. I'm not sure why. I'll have to ask him, you know, why he felt that that was just a stronger place for him during the race. But anyways, yeah. So I guess in being able to simulate with practice and doing whenever you start something new it's kind of intimidating but I'm back in here I'm chatting I'm talking I'm doing so I was really proud of myself yesterday just for starting because like I said I usually well my nickname was gonna in my family Ellie's gonna do this and Ellie's gonna do that but she never actually did any of it so I, I had a lot of great ideas I loved dancing. I loved singing. I loved performing arts. When I was young, I actually dreamed I wanted to be Nicole Kidman and I wanted to go to NIDA, which is um, the National Institute of Dramatic Arts in Australia, which is where she went. And so that was kind of my dream. 
I also really wanted to be a singer back then too. And I had a microphone and a little amp and I would sing in front of my mirror to myself and sound amazing, of course. But, you know, there, there's a, a an important step where you're like, okay, I don't have a singing voice. I just love to do it. So, you know, you have to set some realistic goals with the drama and that side of things. It's something that I could have pursued had I have had the confidence in myself to go after it. But I didn't. I didn't at all. And I kind of hid the fact that that's something that I really, really wanted to do because I was just like, that's not realistic. You know, I'm never going to get to do that. And like, I'm going to make it to the US and be some actress and, you know, whatever else. So I buried that dream when I was really little. And even though in high school I did, and again, we went to a small high school. It wasn't like there were the, these big budget performances and stuff like that. You know, I was in musicals and whatever we had going, I was kind of involved with as far as the drama and arts were concerned. I loved to dance, but I didn't start dancing until I was about 13. So I danced, oh, maybe I was about 12 actually, but I was, um, so I danced right up until I was about 18 and, you know, Chad and I left for Europe. We'll talk about that later, but I love to dance. I love to, you know, perform. I, it's something that I wished I had of stayed with but like I said it was traveling around so that's kind of why I stopped and it's something that I think about I would like to get back into but again it's kind of you know your 37 year old mom of three kids traveling around you're working whatever and it's something you go oh yeah you know I'll drive an hour to take my kids to soccer games I'll drive all this way to you know take my kids to a pump track And I won't drive myself an hour to go to a dance class in Charlotte because why? I haven't answered that yet. So that's on my little to-do list is to maybe check into that and actually start. So I'm going to, I'll back up with that when I actually start it. But the fact that I'm in here doing this is quite a big deal because like I said, it's something that I've wanted to do. I talked about it. I made it public. I followed through with it and then here I am actually in a studio recording. So, okay, back to dreams when I was young. So I I also was a runner and I did sprint training when I was, um, I was probably about 13 to 16, 17. And I would, I really love the 100 meter sprint and it's something that Chad and I joke about now and and I still want to race him and I'm going to beat him in a 100 meter sprint. But it was something that I really enjoyed and actually had a natural ability for. Another joke in my family, fuck you guys, is my trainer was like, you know, like he would say that she has a natural ability to do it. And so they're all like, you know, pay out on me that I was going to be some Olympic star if I had her stuck with it. Ha ha ha. So anyways, typical me you know, I stopped doing it. And it's something I wish I hadn't. And now after all the life and things and whatever else, I I finally just started getting back into it. Um, when I got back to the gym at the end of last year, and I, I really enjoy it. So 
I'm going to do that too. And I'm not, <laughs> I shouldn't say I'm gonna, I am doing that. That's on my list. Okay. So check in with that too. I'm making it public and I'm accountable now. So we've got dance classes. We've got sprint training. Chad, I'm going to beat you in a hundred meter sprint. I'm saying it out loud right now. And, but yeah, these are all these things that I quit doing and I don't really know why I quit. I, I was very active. I loved football. I played touch football, women's touch comp. Like I was the psycho out there that would just dive and crash and, you know, like I didn't care. Like put your body on the line is how I grew up. So I wasn't afraid to just get amongst it, get rough and dirty and all those kinds of things. That's kind of more my style. And I guess maybe that's why it's easy for me to be around the motocross because I was always kind of one of the boys, you know, even in school. Like I would play football on the oval, which let's just create a picture here of our high school. Um, Okay, so it was just literally a a grass area and that was the field. So, I mean, it wasn't anything fancy, but we were allowed to play on this one grassy area. So we would play football at like lunch and stuff. And that's kind of where I started to get to know Chad too, a little bit, you know, his, his guy group of friends and my girl group of friends um, would all hang out. But I always enjoyed getting on the field and playing football and whatever. And I will say that I made an epic tackle one time and I'm not going to call him out, Carl, but I did drop you like a sack of potatoes around the legs. My dad would have been proud and yeah, I'll keep that as my claim to fame. But I really enjoy all those kinds of things. And I, I guess when I first met Chad and really started to get to know him, that's when I figured out Like, I guess that's what was different about him is that he was so determined right when I met him. He was so determined and he was going to America and he was going to race motorcycles and whatever. This is before I even knew what Supercross, motocross, anything was. It was just us talking. He was still broken and we would just, we would call each other all the time at home and, um, that's where my podcast cover um, inspiration for the artwork came from was I would lie in my um, parents' kitchen and there was a phone and it was attached to the wall. Yes, people, we had cords then for everybody who knows a phone with a cord. Thank you. And we were we would just get to know each other. So I would lay there with my legs up the wall and we would just chat to each other for hours and hours until my mom would come out and go, Ellie, it's time for bed. Cause I had school the next day and I was not good without sleep. So, and I always remember he being there, like he was always playing video games with his brother or something. And, you know, we would just chat about all kinds of stuff. So as we got to know each other better, I was very intrigued by the fact that he was so determined and he had his heart set on one thing and he was going and he was doing it. And I was like, holy shit, because that's seriously so polar opposite. It's like, here's Chad. I'm like, one thing he just, that's all he does. And he's just doing it well. Me, I'm over here. I'm like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do da, 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 da. And I'm like, literally got the attention span of a fish. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm bored with that. I'm on to the next thing. And da, 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 da. Like it, he's the first thing that I've ever come across that I wasn't bored with in five minutes. And here we are 
22 yet um 22 years later and we're still together and I'm still so intrigued and so taken by him because he's just he just keeps growing and doing and you know here I am yes I love you but even from from back then you know like he's always been that person and the person that I got to see and anyone that's ever really got close to Chad or he's let you in he's kind of like you know this marshmallow I shouldn't say marshmallow I don't like marshmallows he's like this delicious chocolate because I really love chocolate surrounded by concrete walls and if you peel those walls down and you actually get to you know I shouldn't say this is a weird analogy scrap that he has walls up he is very private very protected he learned at a young age that people were more likely trying to stop you from what you were doing and shoot you down than they were actually just purely trying to love you. So right from a young age, he had a very hardened shell. He was very determined and there was no one going to tell him that he was not going to race a motorcycle and go to the US. And so he became very headstrong in that regard. And, um, you know, in turn, he, you know, he, built this wall up and I actually admire that I think it's something that you know we all should do we all should protect our dreams more vigilantly than we do you know I wished I had that ability to go no this is what I'm gonna do this is what I really want to do and then go after it and not be like oh my god I'm so shy oh I can't go to I can't go to an art school I can't go to become an actress I can't oh my gosh you know like I was so overwhelmed with I could I felt like I couldn't have it where he's like I'm gonna have it I am taking it and all these people that are trying to get in my way I'm gonna block them out and so this wall comes up you know and he's just tunnel vision to the goal so like I said right away I knew he was going when we first started dating and things got more serious and we both decided well shit I'm actually really like you and you like me and you know I, I don't know that we ever made some official statement like oh my gosh we're boyfriend and girlfriend but I always kind of felt like it was a temporary situation because I was I had accepted and I knew that he was leaving so I was like okay he's going to the U.S. I'm going to go to, I'm going to graduate high school and then I'm going to get accepted to university. I'm going to become a school teacher. I'm going to have 2.4 kids and a picket fence house and da, 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 da. Like, you know, I'm, that's, that's where my life's going, right? Not really because I always felt like I wanted more than that. But at the same time, I wasn't as um, aggressive in, and confident in going after those things, even though secretly everyone probably thinks, oh my God, she's so confident and she so goes and does it, whatever. Like there was a lot of things that I didn't have confidence in and that was one of them. So anyways, back to the situation. I always thought our relationship and our little thing was temporary because he was leaving. And 
it wasn't until he got an offer to go to Europe and he, Europe was never on his radar. You know, he didn't want to go to Europe and win a world championship in motocross. He wanted to go to America, be supercross champion, and that was it. And so the offer come and he, or the offer came and he decided I have to take this opportunity because maybe by doing this, I get noticed on a world stage and people look at Australians for quality riders, you know, because there hadn't been one for a really long time. I mean, you know, Jeff Leesk was a, a big export for Australia, but he was a lot older than us. And so no one had really gone over there and shown that Australia was somewhere that, you know, somewhere that was breeding Supercross champions, right? And there was such a thick, you know, uh, there was so many people coming through the ranks over there that, you know, they didn't need to look to Australia. There were The teams were full and, you know, they weren't necessarily searching because there was so much um, available to them there, you know, as far as riders coming up. So Chad decided, okay, I'm going to take this uh, European ride with Jan de Groot and the factory Kawasaki team in, they were based out of Holland. I was like, okay, cool. You know, like you're not going to America, you're going to Europe. I'm going to finish university. I'm sorry. I'm going to finish high school. I'm going to go to university. That's how it was. And then one day we're sitting there in Chad's bedroom. Yes. The one with the Ricky Carmichael poster still above the bed. I have to ask him why you put that up there. I think it was just a big Oakley fan. It was a pretty cool shot. You know, he was already such a Jeremy fan, but I guess it was kind of one of those posters. Everybody had one because it was just so cool. But anyway, back to back to Europe. So he sits down on the bed and he's like, hey, and Chad is a man of few words. Um, he's like, hey, I want you to come to Europe with me. And I was like, what? And that was kind of. Uh, um, and I was like, okay, here's me. It's like, righto, I was going here, and now I'm going there. Perfect. So I, it was kind of like a done deal in our little 18-year-old minds. We were like, yeah, we're going to Europe. Perfect. So I talked to my mum and dad about it, and my mom obviously is like, oh, my God, my baby's moving to Europe, and just like, you know, you think about your kids moving to the other side of the world, especially at that time, because you got to think it was the time when you sent an email and it was okay if it took a week or two to respond because not everybody got on and logged onto their computer with the dial up and checked their emails and all that sort of stuff. It, you know, I didn't have a cell phone and the, the communication was so limited and so different and Europe seemed like a literally, you know, planets away versus just the other side of the world. It was a big step. I'd never been out of the country. I was not somebody to ever leave my ever leave my parents. I mean, I hated school camps because I was terrified to sleep away from my mom and dad's. And I'd have sleepovers at friends' houses and then I'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm sick. I'm going to have to go home. I can't stay the night because I would just panic because I, I, I'm like, I can't stay here. I didn't even like staying over at relatives' houses. So I was... a you know, a mama's girl as far as 
I just needed to be home in my own bed and safe and not going to stay anywhere else until Chad came along. So he's the only person that's ever made me feel like, okay, yeah, I'm good to go. And that's a nice moment for you, Chad. But truly, you know, to have that confidence where I felt like I could go and do something, you know. So we broke the news to my parents. Like I said, my mom was, you know, worried about all the normal things that moms were worried about. My dad, on the other hand, was he's been the one that has supported us the whole time. My mom supported us. But again, it's like, that's my baby girl. She's going to Europe. So that was that emotional, you know, attachment to saying, yes, go, you know, whatever. Whereas my dad, he had lived in England for a period of time um, when he was young before mom and, um, mom and my dad got married and played football. And, it, you know, it was just such an amazing growing year for him to be able to do that. And he lived with a family over there and just took on such an experience as far as traveling and growing and just getting out of a small town and, and you know, spreading your wings and learning something new. And so he really... He obviously really loved Chad right from the get-go. He loved Chad, just everything about him. And I think that they still share that, you know, super close connection. I think they have such a bond over their passion towards their sports, their families, and just, you know, their initial, their hearts are in the same space, you know. So I... He he was fine for me to go with him. He was supportive of us. He's supportive of Chad and his career. And so we decided that it was a yes from our side of the family. And I was going to defer uni for a year just in case it didn't work out. So uni on hold. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm moving to Europe. You know, like my baby sister was devastated because at the time she was only she was only eight years old and we were so close like we shared a bed I had a king bed a queen bed I think actually and like we shared a bed like she was like my little twin basically and I remember her just you know obviously being emotional that we were going so my older sister was supportive she was already you know starting into her uni life and um, stuff like that and my brother was kind of neither here nor there. It was just kind of like, oh, yeah, she's going to Europe. Cool, whatever. So what happened next? What happened next was actually a really big deal because everything started moving towards, okay, they're going to Europe. And I didn't know it at the time, but there was a big drama when it came to Chad telling his parents that I was going and just their reaction and the way they took it and that it was it, it was a really tough moment and it became a really significant part of our whole journey you know and where we still are today unfortunately they did not think it was a great idea and I, I very much try to, I, I, I want to say the story in the right way and not paint negative pictures of anything. But from a 18 year old perspective, 
to a parent's perspective, like I've always tried to acknowledge their side because, you know, they were the ones who had seen him up until that point and done everything to get him there. And so I've always acknowledged that. I never wanted to step in and take over that that role. That was never me. But from my own perspective, I couldn't understand why they didn't like me or why they didn't want me to go. And it was really, really hard for me. I'm like, okay, but I'm willing to give up everything that I'm doing. I, okay, maybe it wasn't so fabulous, but I wasn't going so that I could be on this amazing journey. I had no clue what the future held. I was going because I loved Chad enough that it was worth freezing everything that I'd worked for to get accepted to uni to put it on hold to say, let's see if this works out. I had no clue of what was about to come into our lives. I had not paid attention to the racing scene. I had no clue really what America, Europe had to offer as far as racing. I didn't know the people there. I didn't really know the sport that well, to be honest. I'd been involved, obviously, up until a certain point, but it's like he was off racing and driving around in a van and I was at school studying and doing my thing and then we just get together when we could and I obviously went to a couple of races, you know, when they were local, you know, Sydney was a close one, Newcastle was a close one. It's like within a couple of hours drive, I could maybe go down and watch him. But other than that, he was traveling all over the country in a in a van and staying on the road and doing what he had to do. So I I wasn't actually that heavily involved when we were in Australia. I'd come out and watch him practice. I knew how to change filters. I could change tires. Yes, that was Chad and romance. It was like, come over and watch me ride. Yeah, you put your hand in there and lube up that filter. This is great. So that's kind of really how it was, you know, like I just hang out in the shed with him and, you know, he'd go race at local tracks and whatever else. And I'd just go along and that was really the extent of what I knew about the world I was about to come into. His parents did not want me to go to Europe. And when Chad's in here, he can explain his side of it better. But just to give you a perspective of the story is they basically felt that, you know, it would be better if he took someone else. And I... I believe that they felt that girls were a distraction, that I was going to somehow divert his career, you know, everything they'd all worked for. And somehow it was suddenly not going to be about racing or it was just, you know, what girls and boys do and off they go. And who knows, everything goes downhill after that. So for me, um, it was difficult to hear later that they had said they basically gave him an ultimatum and if he took me to Europe with him then they were I basically the conversation and it's so hard to get out because it's it's very personal and it's important in people's lives and I know that 
you know, everybody that's significant in our lives and in Chad's life will probably listen to this and have an opinion about it. And, you know, I don't want to create emotion. I want to share a story for what it was back then and at the time. And that's how I want this podcast to be, you know, because telling the correct story is how you see the big picture. You know, nobody just ends up here. They've gone through all these things to get to here. And that's how you really truly have understanding of who somebody is, why somebody is, you know, all those kinds of things. So his dad said, if you take Ellie with you, then I'm washing my hands of you. And Chad said, okay, we're done. And basically decided to take me and that was it. You know, he wanted him to take a mechanic or he wanted to take one of his buddies or he, you know, they, they asked maybe, you know, I could come over later, you know, and they would pay for my trip to come over later for him to go and just get settled basically, you know, right off the bat. And again, you know, deep down, I think they had his best interest at heart, but at the same time, I wish they had have known me because that really set us up for a massive downfall as far as our relationship. And immediately, once I found that out, I was like, holy shit, they hate me. And I have so much to prove because I'm not going to slow him down. I'm going to be the one that helps him through every single thing. And we're going to do it together. And so his determination to succeed and get to America, my determination to prove that I'm, you know, like, Girls aren't here for a distraction. Like, I'm not here for his money. He doesn't have any, for one. Like, you know, he has nothing. He has a couple of gear bags, a bit of talent, and an opportunity. That doesn't mean, oh my gosh, we're jumping on board for this success train. It's like, no, there's going to be a lot of fucking hard work from here to there to get to wherever this big place that you're all worried about me preventing him from going. And so... I became so determined to be the best that I could be to help him get where he was going. So right then and there, you've got two very determined people to succeed because I'm not that person. I never was that person. I was very happily, happy, bubbly, let's go you know, kind of person. And then all of a sudden I was like, well, fuck, that sucks. I mean, they had a going away party and for Chad and I still, you know, I still went and we tried to be amicable, you know, whatever. Again, I was like, I felt like I was a little kid. So I was, I wasn't prepared to have these kind of confrontations, especially with someone's parents. Like I, w- I did not grow up where you disrespect somebody's parents you parents are right and you're typically wrong and it was very hard for me to stand up and say I haven't done anything wrong I am not guilty I shouldn't be treated like this like I I never fought back for myself I just accepted that fuck what have I done to deserve this kind of you know like all of a sudden everybody treated me like oh 
she's taking Chad away and she's going to ruin his career and da 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 da, you know? And it was like, shit, we we're all like happy and everything was good while, while there was no plan of me going. As soon as that happened, it was like flick of the switch and all of a sudden everybody viewed me like I was, you know, coming to steal some, you know, steal something. I don't know. But let me tell you, when we packed up to go to Europe, he had a couple of gear bags. I had a couple of bags. I was like, okay, I have no money. My parents are not loaded. Like they are very, you know, we had a lovely childhood, but we were not rich. He was not rich. So I'm like, I'm not here to come jump on board this freaking gold digger train. Like we both got shit. We've got nothing. We've got a couple of gear bags between us. You've got an opportunity. Let's go fucking do it. And I got on the plane and there was a big carry on as far as going down to the airport. And it literally felt like a funeral. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm about to get on this plane and leave my parents, which I never do. His parents are looking like it's a fucking funeral. I was like. Oh my God, this is the most intense, freaking worst bon voyage, bon voyage I've ever experienced. It was awful. So anyways, we say our goodbyes. Obviously, it's, you know, like there are tears. I'd never left the country before and here I was moving. And so we take our gear bags, off we go. We get on the plane. We're in economy in the back and we're first flight I think was 13 hours to Hong Kong okay so 13 hours for your first flight overseas you're just delirious anyway get off the plane it is hot as balls in Hong Kong airport and just like you already feel disgusting you lack of sleep you just want some real food it's sweaty I've never lived with Chad before I'm like fuck what is happening here you know like you're just like all your safety nets are gone. None. There's none. I'm in a foreign country with this guy I've never lived with. We're going to move in together. I've got no parents. I've never even paid bills before. I mean, I worked as a grocery, um, like a checkout chick at Bilo in, you know, in Curry for a couple of years. Okay. So what I learned $11 an hour, I think, which is pretty big stuff. It's not like minimum wage here in the US where you're like at a five bucks an hour. But that I I didn't earn much money. It's not like I paid bills. My mom did my laundry. Like I was spoiled in that fact that she just like had dinner ready and looked after me and you know, they never made me pay for anything. I mean I was still in finishing school and I had a little bit of pocket money that I'd buy a couple of clothes here and there, but I just, you know, buy nothing so I'm like all of a sudden I was just like all these things going through your head like shit I'm like I've got nothing what are we gonna do like my mom mom and dad gave me a thousand dollars okay which is a big deal so they gave me a thousand dollars and they're like here and I'm like okay so I've got this amount of money and that's it and I can't work and I can't you know I'm just like oh my gosh so I start crying when I get on this next flight um the one that goes to London which again is like another 13 or 14 hour flight and so you just like oh 
And I start crying and Chad's like, oh my God, what? And he's he starts freaking out. He's like, are you homesick? Don't leave me. Do you want to go home? Oh, it's going to be all right. And like, so we're just there, little kids, like both of us just like, fuck, what are we doing? And I think the fact that there is at this point, you know, like you don't have cell phones, you don't have a clue of where you're going. It's not like you can just Google the place that you're going and look it all up and everything's available to you. You're literally flying. You've got no clue about anything. You just like, he got a fax on a piece of paper of the contract that he had. He's going to get picked up at the airport by one of the mechanics. And that's all we know. I haven't got a clue. Where are we going to live? I don't know. What do we have no, no idea. So it gets a little bit overwhelming at that point where I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm good. And so anyways, we finally get to London and then we've got another flight. I think it was an hour over to Holland where we get picked up by one of the mechanics who just so happens to be Oscar, who later becomes, you know, one of our closest mechanics. And he, you know, he moves over to the US and all those kinds of things. So you'll hear about Oscar later, but he's one of the first, he is the first person that we met. And he picks us up from the airport. We drive back to the race shop and kind of meet the whole team and everything else. And I just remember Yonder Groot and he's so tall and, you know, he's smoking his cigarettes and, you know, um, just meeting people at the race shop and you've just got off a plane that you've been on for what feels like 30 something hours of traveling. So you, even if you thought you looked okay, you, you just, nothing's good. But anyways, you meet all the team, whatever. And that's my first real experience with jet lag and it was just nuts. And you're in this cold place in Holland. And so it was just dark and dreary and so you're just like oh I've come from Australia it's sunny we're like you know the whole flip-flops and shorts thongs for Australia okay so Americans call them flip-flops Australians call them thongs whatever you want to say so you go from like thongs and shorts to okay we're over here and it's freezing it's rainy it's dreary and I'm jet lagged you don't know what's happening. And so we stayed at uh, Jan's house for a a couple of nights. And it's funny. He's he's since passed away. So, you know, like all of our lovely memories of him, it's actually really nice to talk about. But he showed Chad this dessert that he would make. And it was, it was ice cream with cornflakes. And then I believe he had Milo on the top. If it wasn't Milo, it was like a, you know, kind of like a chocolate Ovaltine whatever but I think it was Milo I think they had it over there and that's oh no was it okay scratch that it was ice cream custard and cornflakes and so he would mix that all in and so Chad's a big dessert person anybody who knows him knows he loves his ice creams so he's like yes perfect the team manager we're in here having these big uh desserts this is a match made in heaven so anyways we first uh trip I guess was we were going testing in Italy and so we go in the back of this you know it was like a a transporter and so there was like a little you know train of trucks it was a couple of trucks and then some cars and 
we made our way from Holland to Italy and you know it's a couple of days of driving so we had to stop and so we stayed in the back of this little camper van thing you know you sleep up in the top part and there's like a little toilet a little tiny table whatever so you're literally just driving in the back of this truck I've again never been it was such an isolating weird time in my life because okay so we get there Chad's like off testing and so he's in his element right it's freezing but he's out there and he's testing and communicating with the team and you know he met his mechanic Marco who was fantastic and so they're out to set to test to get ready for the season and I'm like okay cool and so it's just all these guys and me and I'm like I literally just sitting there just like silence in the back of this freaking thing going what am I gonna do like seriously what am I gonna do this is so fucking boring I'm used to being around my family which everybody's talking at once and there's never not conversation and here I am literally alone so I you know I started journaling I started writing in you know my diary I had a discman and I would lay there and just sing and you know I'd dance around in this thing and I'm like oh my gosh I'm going fucking batshit crazy in here like it was a lot to deal with it was not fun I had a meltdown and was like okay Chad seriously I've got no fucking clean clothes I've got I've got nothing, you know, like we've been here a week. I'm, we've got nothing to eat. I said, I've got no clean underwear. I'm just losing my shit. Because seriously, it was like being in solitary confinement where I was just stuck in this truck. So it was kind of one of those make it, break it, whatever. I knew he had to be testing and that was fine. It was more, what the fuck am I going to do? I've never been so disconnected from life and from communication and from people in my entire existence like I said my household is so busy and full of people talking and you know dinners and I don't even care if we're yelling at each other it was just something you know it was never there was never a quiet moment and here I am like a week long stuck in solitary confinement and I just decided I'm going to have to get involved here because if I don't do something, I'm going to go batshit crazy. I'm going to drive him batshit crazy. And then this is over, you know, like this is not, this is not healthy. I'm not okay. So I got out of the truck and I just started to hang around and I watched and I learned and I, you know, bonded with the team and I got involved and I'm a quick learner when it comes to watching and learning and seeing. So I'd walk around the, you know, the track and I'd find places that I could see and watch. And I'd started, you know, like I'd cheer him on. And then, you know, it was like they'd be talking about testing setting, you know, testing settings and stuff like that and things that they were changing. And you just started to absorb things. And it's like I may not have at that time known exactly what all of it meant, but it was just, okay, watch, learn, take it all in you know, see what, see what we're doing here. And basically that's kind of where everything started, where, where I immersed myself into what we were doing because I had to get involved because I'm not the type of person that can just sit there. 
Like I'm not somebody who just wants to go to the mall and go, oh my gosh, I'm just going to go shopping and tour around. And that's fine for the people who do, but I can't. Like it's not like I've never been one to, I'm bored after 30 seconds. I'm like, can someone just like, I'm sitting here in my comfy clothes. Like this is me. I'm just comfy, just creature of habit. I'll throw on the same clothes. I don't care. And I'm not a tourist because I'm just not like I'm not somebody who's like, yeah, I have places that it's like, okay, it's cool. I want to go see this and this and this. But it's not like that was not my purpose of being there was like, okay, well, you guys do your job and I'm just going to be off here and, you know, touring around like it just didn't interest me. Plus, I didn't have a phone. So I knew I'd probably end up lost and it wasn't a thing for me <laughs> to want to get lost in um, Europe at the time. So I was too scared to go places by myself, actually. So I really just got involved. And after that experience, and we went back to um, we went back to Holland, we got ourselves situated, they gave us a car. And we ended up we rented a apartment in Belgium and it was kind of like about 40 minutes from the race shop and it was in a place called Lommel and the end of our street was Holland and then we were down here and that was Belgium and it was it was just funny because growing up in Australia it's like you you can drive for days and days and days and you're not crossing any country borders so for me I was like oh wow this is you know a new thing but we ended up, we rented this little apartment above a physiotherapy guy and it was just this little two-bedroom apartment with white tiles and high school chairs and a table and like literally the basics of everything and there was this little tiny couch and it was like, you know, you don't know how long it's been there or how many people have sat on it and so we went to Ikea and we just bought a like the basics, literally the most basic, basic things you could ever have. And we just threw a blanket over the couch. We got a TV, just like a small one. And again, it was one of those box ones, you know, and we knew we weren't staying. So everything was so temporary. It was just like, get the basics, get what we need, survive this year. Then we're out of here. That's, that was the plan. It was weird. We had to open a bank account and you know, like I'd never really even been to the bank in Australia. So I was like, okay. So we had to go and figure it out. We had to figure out everything. It was, you know, at that time there was different currencies. So we had little Ziploc bags with the different monies in it. And, you know, I had to go and get a credit card and set up a, a bank account for, you know, for when we got paid and we got paid in, you know, a foreign currency. So it's like, I didn't even really understand, you know, Belgium francs. And I was like, okay so we got this much and you know this cost this much and we found grocery stores and we bought rollerblades and we'd rollerblade along the canals because everyone was out and about in Australia if the weather had have been like that people would be like yeah no nah, we'll just wait till tomorrow to go outside but in Europe it's like rainy and overcast and you know pretty well I shouldn't say Europe I should say in Belgium Holland area you know, it's just is that gloomy kind of weather and everybody's just out living, getting after it, you know, riding their bikes everywhere. And we're like, we're going to have to get amongst it. We're going to have to, you know, go out in this weather. And so we did. We got rollerblades and we 
found our way around the cities and, you know, found our grocery stores and all these kinds of things. I remember we went and got our hair done and people have probably seen Chad with his hair like peroxide white, you know. But he used to like, he just, whatever, you know, maybe it was because Jeremy and all those guys used to get their frosted tips and stuff. But so he's like, I mean, yeah, I'm going to dye my hair. So we went to this hair salon because... I was like, yeah, I need my hair done. Like it's been, you know, probably four months since I had it even touched, you know. And so we're in there and it's like everybody's in the hair salon just having a cig. And I was like, oh, my gosh. So the chemicals on Chad's head paired with the amount of cigarette smoke. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, like this would not happen in Australia because in Australia, you at that even at that point, you had been banned from smoking inside, you know, you could still smoke in a pub, you could still smoke in, you know, a certain place in the restaurant and all those kinds of things, but definitely not in a hair salon. And Europe was just like, yep, just have, and people were just like chain smoking like the whole time. And Chad hates the smell of cigarettes, probably because, you know, his parents smoked when he was young and he used to just hate it. But I mean, I didn't grow around grow up around parents who smoked but I just don't like the smell of it you know it's like each their own whatever you want to do but I just hated the fact like cigarettes you could always you know it wasn't like okay you have your cigarette but it's like I don't want to have it too so you know I'm all for the dip and that's what a lot of the um you know like Oscar and those guys they would um dip with you know I think they'd have it up in the top of their mouth and so they'd be walking around with their big dip things, but they would swallow it. It was like hectic. You guys were hectic. Anyways, but at least then it's like, hey, it's all you and I don't have to smell it. So good for you. The Europeans definitely loved a cig um, back then. So just funny, you know, little tidbits here and there. I guess another big deal over there was his first... No, it wasn't his first race. Yes, it was his first race. Okay, so I believe it was Vulcan Swat. And he knows every single detail of every single race. But he, it was a sand track and he sucked. He rode so bad and it's kind of like one of those things. It was a big freaking deal. And if you have never actually done anything big, like, again, I feel like when I first stepped into this you know, room and started recording, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so intimidated right now. And there's like nobody actually even in here watching me. And I don't know if it's because I am by myself. (laughs) Maybe it's giving me nightmares of me being in that truck again. And I'm like hyperventilating. But if you've never done anything out of your comfort zone or something that really, really matters to you or something that you really, really want to achieve, You can't quite understand the magnitude of the emotional weight that it puts on you. So I suggest you go out there and try it and and just get that reality because until you really do it, you don't know how it feels. But he, okay, so it's his first big race, you know, and he did, he sucked. He crashed that many times. He rode so crap in the sand. And when I say sand, I mean, it literally was like a big sand pit. And the Europeans are amazing at sand tracks, especially, um, you know, those in, you know, Belgium, Holland, whatever, because a lot of their tracks are sand and that's what they grew up on. And so they're specialists, you know, 
Stefan Everett's one of the, the best ever at it. So Chad was always like, I need to, you know, watch and learn from him. But he was terrible. And so he comes off the track and he had, again, just to give you the picture of it. So he has gear that the team had given him. So it was not that cute. And you've probably seen the, you know, the green pro group, whatever. And he just got a box of gear and it's like, here's your gear. And he got some helmets. And I mean, they were basically, you know, at that point, he just had a plain white helmet with some stickers on it. Later on, he got some helmets painted up or whatever. But, you know, for the first few, I I think it was pretty much just whatever he had. He comes off the track and we had these little camper vans. Um, everyone kind of drove their own camper van to the races. And it had a little part in the back that was kind of like your garage spacing where you could put you know, bicycles and those kinds of things, you know, when you were on the road. So he comes off the track, he goes straight into there, he's sitting on the back of a, you know, like a bike stand and he just pulls his helmet off and starts crying and I'm in the back there and I'm just like, what the fuck, you know, because in Australia he didn't suck, you know, he may have had bad races, he may have crashed out, he may have whatever, but he was fine. He knew his space. He knew the people he was racing against. He was confident. He had success. And when he got to Europe, that all, everything was brand new. The style of riding, the tracks, the people that you're racing against. And he just fell apart. And I was like, shit, you know, because I hadn't had to deal with that sort of thing. It's not like I'd had to give him a pep talk before because he just went and did his thing in Australia. He did really well you know it was a place he was comfortable he was confident you know he just knew how to win and if he didn't win you know he'd come back the next week and you know he he knew how to get it done this was whole new territory and so it was the first time I really had to go fuck step up Ellie this is your this is (laughs) this you're in and being my father's daughter who I grew up in a you know, football environment where it was like in the dressing sheds, it was big pep talks and it was team culture and, you know, very much fight to the death kind of that type of thing where it was like, we're in this and everything was like, let's get going kind of thing. And that's, that's who my dad always was. You know, he was always one for a, you know, a pep talk and all those kinds of things. So it wasn't like it was new to me, but I never actually had to do it. So, I struggled at first and I was like, you know, I'm, I didn't sign up for this shit. <laughs> you know, I'm like brutal. I'm like, what are you doing out there? And he's like, I don't know. I just can't do it. And da, da, da. Just, you just see the guy just deflated, deflated, deflated. And I was like, fuck. I'm like, I don't care who these people are out there. We did not come all this way to fail. So I suggest you get your shit together and get back out there and figure it out. And that was basically the nutshell of that pep talk. And I don't know whether it was very peppy, but at the same time, it was just literally the truth. I'm like, okay. And I really, I didn't know who these people were. So to me, they meant nothing. I was like, I don't care about Mikhail Pashon. And I don't care about this guy and this guy and this guy. And again, they're 
world-renowned, amazing writers. That's not, you know, taking away from that. But at the time, I was like, I don't care who they are. I'm not putting them on a pedestal. You are who you are. And I don't care what they're, you know, you know, what they've they've accomplished in their life. You have worked hard. You deserve to be there. Go out there and show them what they've got, what you've got. And so in a nutshell, that's kind of how it went down. And so from there on out, I was just, I had no tolerance for him putting his head down and saying that I can't do it. You know, I just was brutally honest with him and it was what worked at the time. And as we progress through this podcast, you'll see how that evolves and changes and stuff like that. So, you know, just taking away that fear and that worry, you know, for him at the time, he was just like thinking he was a fish out of water or he didn't deserve to be there or it just was, you know, he didn't ride the way he wanted to ride and then he felt like a failure or I'll ask him when he comes in exactly at that point what it was for him. But, you know, he he wasn't, he didn't perform. So we packed up from that weekend, we went home and it, we just got to work on you know, training and prepping and he decided, you know, he needed to ride in the sand a lot more. He watched people like Stefan Stefan Evitz, who, you know, was a master of that craft and, you know, just the standing up style and all those kinds of things and just, you know, trying to emulate that. So we spent a lot of time at practice tracks just putting in the time and practicing and working to get better. And every weekend he he did he started to get better he started to get podiums he started to improve and you know put himself in that position that he knew he could but you know it just he just had to keep working at it and eventually we got to Lirup which was another sand race and it was really one of the most exciting races because he came you know from behind um, Pichon and caught him and passed him and you know won the race and it was such an epic moment and to add to that like when I was in Europe I you know I became part of the team and I loved that about the European ways of their teams allowed me in welcomed me I was part of the team it was Chad and I it wasn't just Chad and oh here she is I wore a team shirt. I stood in the, I was in the mechanics area. So when his pit board went out and they're waving the flag and stuff, like I was there like, ah, go, you know, like we were all in it. We all celebrated together. It was just really, it was beautiful because you're just, you really were such a part of it and everything you all collectively worked for, you know, you were embraced to be part of that team. And so it is really where I rose to being a part of that team and what my role was and how I could help. And, you know, it just started to find, you know, where I could fit in and how I could help Chad get to his next, you know, his next achievement. So when he crossed the finish line and he won this race, you know, it's like, the team and his mechanic Marco and you know you just all like hug and celebrate and go up to the podium and they got these big beautiful flowers 
and humongous champagne bottles and just, you know, European MXGPs, they do such a fantastic job. Even way back then, it was 2001. And they did such a great job as far as the overall running of the races. And it was just always so professional. And like I said, I loved when he got a podium and when I got flowers because it was the only time I ever got flowers. Chad wasn't really like a let's buy flowers kind of guy. So I I guess, you know, that part of it and what's important to me is that I became part of the team. Chad rose to the occasion of what he needed to do to step up from the guy that sucked at the first race to being able to prove that he was a podium contender to being, you know, an MXGP winner. And we finished out that season in second place. And it was it was a massive achievement, you know, for us personally. You know, there were times where it was really fucking lonely. And we shared a cell phone and, you know, I would send emails to my mom and you know, two weeks later, she would write one back. And, you know, communication was was so much harder back then. We talked about everything and all the time, which was wonderful. And we really got to learn each other and know each other. Another cute story is that we could only get one channel on the TV. And it was Seventh Heaven. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it it was like, I mean, Jessica Biel was in it when she was like a little girl. So a long time ago, but it was the only thing in English on our channel. So we would watch it every night. And that was our favorite show because it was the only English channel that we could get. So we would tune into that. And we also had coloring in books and we would color in. And I actually, when we were cleaning out the other you know, a couple of weeks back, I found the coloring in books and all our little stuff that we had. So I'll have to show you that because it really is cute. So we would sit there and color in because there was nothing else happening. And Chad's actually very good at coloring in, by the way. But yeah, we would do all kinds of cute little stuff that you probably would never expect. The same thing when we would go on road trips. Our first, okay, I have to go back and correct my, um, my story because our first GP was in Spain. So it was the second GP and the first time he was in um, sand. That's when he really failed. The first GP, we went to Spain and we are in our little camper van and we reverse out of the driveway and we look both directions and we're like, okay, we know Holland is at the end of the street this way. So we've got to go this way, left. I don't know where we left from a right in a quick way. So I'm going to just left. So we had to go left. And there was no map quest. There's no phones. There's no GPS. So we pull up at a gas station, um, buy a map. Chad hands me the map and he's like, okay, this is where the GP is. You're going to have to get me there. And I'm like, I've never read a map before. Like, I've never even driven that far away from home before. So anyways, I get on this map and I'm like, all right, you know, and I gave him directions and we ended up, we made it. And it's like, we went through all these different countries and we went through Luxembourg and I wish we had have probably went around it. And we went through these main streets and you're in this, the roads are so tiny and the 
the camper van was little, but it felt ginormous. And you're like, oh my gosh, you know, like you're just trying to suck in, you know, to get through these crazy little streets and towns. And you come to, you know, what was the the way to the motocross track. And it's not like anything's massively signposted. I mean, literally, there's a little card on the ground in a stake in the ground that says MX. And so you're like, oh, there's a sign, there's a sign. And you're following these, it literally was like a scavenger hunt. And just to get to the track was like, you felt like you wanted a little bit of a prize or a sticker because I was like, yes, we've made it. And I mean, you can imagine the car, you know, like the arguments of like, oh, you said to go this way. And I'm like, I didn't say that way. I meant that way. And all the dramas that we went through, but it was such a building experience for us as far as becoming a couple we only had each other you know there was you know there's no phone a friend there was no here's mom and dad's safety net it was figure it out make it up whatever has to happen here's what we have to do figure it out and so we did I mean we would drive and we didn't have a stereo and so I had a discman and I would put it on and here I am playing the discman and it was like you know all those songs from back then it was like shaggy you know what's it called hey you're my angel my, my i can't even sing it you're my darling angel girl you're my friend when i'm in need baby okay this is the shit that we we're singing back then and like nelly Furtado, i'm like a bird fly away okay that was what was cool back then on the you know, now it was probably 12 at the time. And so anyways, I'm singing all these songs in Chad's ear. He's having to listen to me sing. And, you know, we're just road tripping along. I mean, if that's not love right there, I don't know what is. Because he would just patiently listen to my voice sing these songs. And obviously you can tell from right there, not so good. I probably had a few good ones, but I'm not vocally trained. I just want to put that out there. So he would listen to me sing. And then eventually, you know, like we had a little bit of extra money. And so then he got a discman at the same, you know, he got a discman and we got the same CD. And so then we'd be like, okay, ready, set, go. And we both press play at the same time. So then we were both listening to the same song at the same time. And we're like rocking out down the thing and so cool. And then we realized that that was, you know, pretty dumb. But it was all we could afford at the time and all we were willing to spend. So then we, you know, he would do these German um he would do these German uh, motocross events on the off weekends and they would get paid um, in cash to show up and do these races. So we had a bit of extra money. And so we finally decided to put a actual stereo system into the a CD player into the um, camper van. So then we didn't need to wear our discmans anymore. And we could just rock out to these amazing CDs that we had back then. So that was a fun little journey. But like I said, it was just all cute, you know, life skills building stuff. I mean, we were in Italy with our friends at the time, Natalie and Andrew. And when 9-11 happened, uh, we were 
we were there and my mom called me and said, Ellie, are you guys okay there? There's been this, you know, big hostage situation and, you know, there's a lot of bad things going on in America and they just want everybody, you know, it's, it's really rocked the whole world basically. And we put it on the TV. We couldn't understand a thing that was being said because it was all in Italian. Um, but we could obviously see the devastation and everything. And so then, uh, you know, security was pretty nuts because it was pretty free flowing, you know, in Europe up until that point. And then the whole world kind of got, you know, shit, we've got to, you know, we've, we're going to have to, you know, take this stuff pretty seriously. And, and so we were driving through Switzerland to go to a race and we had Australian passports. We had Holland visas. We were driving a Italian motorhome and like I said, and then we were in Switzerland and we were going somewhere else. We got pulled over by these, you know, police and they start yelling at us and they're talking to us in Italian because they see the license plate and we're like, Palo Anglais, Palo Anglais, you know, like freaking out because they've got vests and all these massive guns and stuff like that. And we're like, shit. And they're asking us for our passports. Then we give them their passports and then they're like, well, you're from Australia. Why are you here? What are you driving this car? You're you're riding for a Dutch team. You know, nothing lined up. We look sauce as anything. Then he's like, go in the back and open the, you know, the door. And so I had to go in the back and this guy with his gun coming at me, you know, like I was, you know, transporting terrorists or something. And so, I mean, literally freaking out. And I open the door and then he makes me go into the back and open the bathroom door. And I mean, that's a pretty terrifying thing because for one, you, your language barrier is so scary because you're, you're just arms up because you're just like, I don't want to get in trouble here, please. I can't, I can't communicate with you and I don't want to say the wrong thing. Anyways, obviously they see there's no one in the back. We had to unlock the thing and everything was fine and you know they realized we didn't have anybody in there and we were just on our way through but at the same time just things like that that you're just like oh my gosh you know just things that shake you up that you're not really prepared for and the whole year was moments like not exactly like that but moments like that where it's literally you're thrown in at the deep end and we had to figure it out and we figured it out together. It became, it could have been one of the worst experiences ever as far as for a new young couple moving in over there, literally thrown into a deep end and being like, good luck, you know, and we got closer. We learned more about each other. We bonded so hard because all we had was each other. And it was kind of that make or break you moment where you're like, okay, we're, we're really in this together, you know? And, and there was, it was, it was a really nice moment. I'm so glad and so thankful that we had the opportunity to have that year together in Europe, because had we have come straight to the U S I don't know 
you know, shoulda, coulda, woulda, and I hate going back there, but I'm, I'm just thankful that we went there first because coming to the US was a whole different ballgame. And I'm going to get into that on a later episode. It, it was a completely different ride in itself. And that'll take us down so many different paths. But like I said, they wanted to, Europe was, was fantastic. We're thankful for it. It wasn't Chad's original plan, but it was such an important and vital stepping stone for him on his journey at first success. And it was such a nice, welcoming, warm group of people involved in the motocross over there. Like I just have such a love for the people that we had over there. And it was such a different environment. Like I said, we hadn't got to really be us in the Australian Supercross. Everyone was wonderful, beautiful. And it was almost like everyone had grown up together and it was such a lovely little family and you know, the people that are involved there, like they're the people that I still love to go back and do the one-off races and see everybody because we've known each other for seriously 22 years. So it was just such a different, but that's your home. And I think when you're at home, it's such a, it's, it's such a safe, comfortable place to be. You've got your family, the people you grew up racing, the people, everyone's so familiar. You know, everybody, you know, where you're at with everybody, you know where you should be with everybody. And whether it's racing or off the track stuff, everything's comfortable. It's what you know. So our step to Europe was like, everything's completely unknown. But yet, it was such a nice space to be in because they were so welcoming and everybody was supportive and nice to each other in the pits. And regardless of how competitive the racing was on the track, when you came off the track, everybody was like, would smile at each other. And it was like, hey, you know, and everybody just was like, ciao, ciao, ciao. And it didn't even matter if you were Italian or not. Like everyone just said ciao to each other. And it was like, righto, I'm in this. Ciao, ciao. And kiss each other on the lip, um, on the cheeks, you know, a couple of times. And it was just, it was so nice. Like people genuinely were happy for your success. When Chad did well, it was like, you know, it wasn't just our team that were happy. It was like everybody was, you know, genuinely happy for each other. I mean, yeah, there was certain people that might have been dicks here and there and whatever. That's normal. That's racing. Everyone had their competitive moments on the track and things like that. But for the most part, it was just such a beautiful environment and I'm so thankful that I got to learn and I was welcomed with open arms to become part of a team because that allowed me to, you know, immerse myself, become involved, learn and really enjoy what this whole motocross thing was all about because that's where I I really was able to fall in love with it I guess so they wanted him to stay and win a world championship and they wanted to renew his contract and Chad was like okay but will Cowie in the U.S. you know jump on board with that and give me a ride I want to race in the 250 supercross class which was the premier class at the time will they get on board with it? And it's like, I'll race here one year and then I'll go over there and have a ride for the following year. 
and they wouldn't do it. And so, you know, they still weren't sure about Chad Reed, you know, and coming to America and stuff like that. So he um, got offered a job with uh, Yamaha Tori. And it was a, you know, the 250, uh, sorry, it was the 125 class at the time, but it was to ride a 250. And it was when the first, you know, of the four strokes were coming out. So it was kind of confusing. It was like, okay, you're in the 125 class, you're riding a 250 four stroke, which is what they raced at back then. So it was for those younger ones listening, it was the lights class back then. And Chad had never raced a 125 professionally. He'd moved straight up to the 250 class in Australia. And he really didn't want to have to go backwards. You know, he wanted to just go straight to the 250. It's where he felt most comfortable, all those kinds of things. But again, he had to do what he needed to do to get where he wanted to go. And it still, as much as, you know, we loved our year in Europe, he did not want to stay and you know, win a world championship, it wasn't, it wasn't his dream. And he still, he just was, I've got to go, I've got to take this opportunity and I've got to keep running with it and go where my heart, you know, has always wanted to be. So he accepted the ride, you know, so that he could hopefully, again, get noticed and be able to uh, get that 250 or premier class ride uh, the following year. So he did a one year deal with Yamaha Troy and at the end of 2001, we moved to Europe, um, to the USA. So I'm going to wrap up there for today because I feel like I really got a lot out. And we will move on to move into the US on the next podcast. But I hope I've, there's probably so many more Europe stories and things like that. Uh, we, to just go back in there, we still during that year of racing, we still, you know, struggled with, you know, the relationship with his parents. Everything was fine with mine. My sister had severe, you know, like anxiety because she missed me and she wished I was home. And, you know, so that was really hard on her because, you know, I was her person and then all of a, all of a sudden I was gone. So it was like, it wasn't like, you know, we, there was a lot of, you know, things happening at the same time, but his, his relationship with his parents kind of remained strained and that was difficult to deal with, especially over the phone from a long distance away. Communication was never their strong suit anyway. So it wasn't like for me with my family, if I'm going to have it out, I'm going to have it out and I'm going to say everything like literally like scream it all out cry shout tell you know this is how I feel this is how you make me feel blah 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 and they're they're not wired in the same way and that proved a difficult thing for them to be able to communicate and I tried very hard to see their side and just take on board like what they were going through so I tried to brush it under the rug as much as I could as far as you know, I didn't want to keep making it a deal. Like I wanted him to be able to have that relationship with his parents and move on from it. But it just, it's still at that point, it had not smoothed out because everybody still had a lot of very heavy feelings. So that's kind of where that, you know, ended up there. 
So yeah, Chad and I, Europe, Czech, uh, amazing. We grew, we learned. I figured out a role and a way to keep myself busy. And uh, it gave me a tremendous purpose to be able to start helping him pursue his dream. At the same time, in my 37-year age now, I look back and I say, I, you know, I, I wanted to be the very best I could for him, not only for my own self, but to prove that I was worthy to be there. And that becomes relevant later on in the story, but just wanted to add that in there that I... I very much wanted to feel like I wasn't I I didn't want to be to be defined as here's some chick just come in to jump on board. I was never that girl. I was never that girl growing up. I wasn't somebody who just was like you know wanted to jump on some bandwagon. Like I was on my own train. I didn't know where it was going, but I was on it. And so that was important for me to 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 work hard and to feel like I, you know, I was helping, I was contributing. I, you know, I couldn't obviously work, but I could work to help him. So it wasn't like I just wanted to be there on some free ride and glamorous trip because it was far from that. It was very far from that. So anyways, I think that I have said everything I need to say for right now. And I'm going to wrap up there and thank you for listening. Just keep talking.